Chapters 59 and 60 of The Way of All Flesh. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rhonda Fetterman. The Way of All Flesh by Samuel Butler. Chapter 59. Before going down into the kitchen to convert the tinker, Ernest ran hurriedly over his analysis of Paley's evidences, and put into his pocket a copy of Archbishop Waitley's historic doubts. Then he descended the dark, rotten old stairs, and knocked at the tinker's door. Mr. Shaw was very civil. He said he was rather thronged just now, but if Ernest did not mind the sound of hammering, he should be very glad to talk with him. Our hero, assenting to this, ere long led the conversation to Waitley's historic doubts, a work which, as the reader may know, pretends to show that there was never any such person as Napoleon Bonaparte, and thus satirizes the arguments of those who have attacked the Christian miracles. Mr. Shaw said he knew historic doubts very well. "'And what do you think of it?' said Ernest, who regarded the pamphlet as a masterpiece of wit and cogency. "'If you really want to know,' said Mr. Shaw, with a sly twinkle, "'I think that he who was so willing and able to prove that what was was not would be equally able and willing to make a case for thinking that what was not was.' if it suited his purpose. Ernest was very much taken aback. How was it that all the clever people of Cambridge had never put him up to this simple rejoinder? The answer is easy. They did not develop it for the same reason that a hen had never developed webbed feet. That is to say, because they did not want to do so. But this was before the days of evolution, and Ernest could not as yet know anything of the great principle that underlies it. "'You see,' continued Mr. Shaw, "'these writers all get their living by writing in a certain way, and the more they write in that way, the more they are likely to get on. You should not call them dishonest for this any more than a judge should call a barrister dishonest for earning his living by defending one in whose innocence he does not seriously believe.' but you should hear the barrister on the other side before you decide upon the case. This was another facer. Ernest could only stammer that he had endeavored to examine these questions as carefully as he could. "'You think you have,' said Mr. Shaw. "'You Oxford and Cambridge gentlemen think you have examined everything. I have examined very little myself, except the bottoms of old kettles and saucepans.' but if you will answer me a few questions, I will tell you whether or no you have examined much more than I have. Ernest expressed his readiness to be questioned. Then, said the tinker, give me the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ as told in St. John's Gospel. I am sorry to say that Ernest mixed up the four accounts in a deplorable manner. He even made the angel come down and roll away the stone and sit upon it. He was covered with confusion when the tinker first told him without the book of some of his many inaccuracies, and then verified his criticisms by referring to the New Testament itself. Now, said Mr. Shaw, good-naturedly, I am an old man, and you are a young one, 
so perhaps you will not mind my giving you a piece of advice. I like you, for I believe you mean well, but you've been real bad brought up, and I don't think you have ever had so much as a chance yet. You know nothing of our side of the question, and I have just shown you that you do not know much more of your own. But I think you will make a kind of Carlyle sort of man some day. Now, go upstairs and read the accounts of the resurrection correctly, without mixing them up, and have a clear idea of what it is that each writer tells us. Then, if you feel inclined to pay me another visit, I shall be glad to see you, for I shall know you have made a good beginning and mean business. Till then, sir, I must wish you a very good morning. Ernest retreated, abashed. An hour sufficed him to perform the task enjoined upon him by Mr. Shaw, and at the end of that hour the no, 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 which still sounded in his ears as he heard it from Townley, came ringing up more loudly still from the very pages of the Bible itself, and in respect of the most important of all the events which are recorded in it. Surely Ernest's first day's attempt at more promiscuous visiting, and at carrying out his principles more thoroughly, had not been unfruitful. But he must go and have a talk with Pryor. He therefore got his lunch, and went to Pryor's lodgings. Pryor not being at home, he lounged to the British Museum reading room, then recently opened, sent for the vestiges of creation, which he had never yet seen, and spent the rest of the afternoon in reading it. Ernest did not see Pryor on the day of his conversation with Mr. Shaw, but he did so next morning, and found him in a good temper, which of late he had rarely been. Sometimes, indeed, he had behaved to Ernest in a way which did not bode well for the harmony with which the College of Spiritual Pathology would work when it had once been founded. It almost seemed as though he were trying to get a complete moral ascendancy over him, so as to make him a creature of his own. He did not think it possible that he could go too far, and indeed, when I reflect upon my hero's folly and inexperience, there is much to be said in excuse for the conclusion which Pryor came to. As a matter of fact, however, it was not so. Ernest's faith in Pryor had been too great to be shaken down all in a moment, but it had been weakened lately more than once. Ernest had fought hard against allowing himself to see this. Nevertheless, any third person who knew the pair would have been able to see that the connection between the two might end at any moment, for when the time for one of Ernest's snipe-like changes of flight came, he was quick in making it. The time, however, was not yet come, and the intimacy between the two was apparently all that it had ever been. It was only that horrid money business, so said Ernest to himself, that caused any unpleasantness between them, and no doubt Pryor was right, and he, Ernest, much too nervous. However, that might stand over for the present." In like manner, though he had received a shock by reason of his conversation with Mr. Shaw, and by looking at the vestiges, he was as yet too much stunned to realize the change which was coming over him. In each case the momentum of old habits carried him forward in the old direction. 
He therefore called on Pryor, and spent an hour and more with him. He did not say that he had been visiting among his neighbors. This to Pryor would have been like a red rag to a bull. He only talked in much of his usual vein about the proposed college, the lamentable want of interest in spiritual things, which was characteristic of modern society, and other kindred matters. He concluded by saying that for the present he feared Pryor was indeed right, and that nothing could be done. "'As regards the laity,' said Pryor, "'nothing.' not until we have a discipline which we can enforce with pains and penalties. How can a sheep-dog work a flock of sheep unless he can bite occasionally, as well as bark? But as regards ourselves, we can do much. Pryor's manner was strange throughout the conversation, as though he were thinking all the time of something else. His eyes wandered curiously over Ernest as Ernest had often noticed them wander before. The words were about the church discipline, but somehow or other the discipline part of the story had a knack of dropping out after having been again and again emphatically declared to apply to the laity, and not to the clergy. Once, indeed, Pryor had pettishly exclaimed, "'Oh, bother the College of Spiritual Pathology!' As regards the clergy— Glimpses of a pretty large cloven hoof kept peeping out from under the saintly robe of Pryor's conversation, to the effect that so long as they were theoretically perfect, practical peccadilloes, or even peccadaccios, if there is such a word, were of less importance. He was restless, as though wanting to approach a subject which he did not quite venture to touch upon, and kept harping— he did this about every third day, on the wretched lack of definition concerning the limits of vice and virtue, and the way in which half the vices wanted regulating rather than prohibiting. He dwelt also on the advantages of complete unreserve, and hinted that there were mysteries into which Ernest had not yet been initiated, but which would enlighten him when he got to know them as he would be allowed to do when his friends saw that he was strong enough. Pryor had often been like this before, but never so nearly, as it seemed to Ernest, coming to a point, though what the point was he could not fully understand. His inquietude was communicating itself to Ernest, who would probably ere long have come to know as much as Pryor could tell him but the conversation was abruptly interrupted by the appearance of a visitor. We shall never know how it would have ended, for this was the very last time that Ernest ever saw Pryor. Perhaps Pryor was going to break to him some bad news about his speculations. CHAPTER Sixty. Ernest now went home and occupied himself till luncheon, with studying Dean Alford's notes upon the various evangelical records of the resurrection, doing as Mr. Shaw had told him, and trying to find out not that they were all accurate, but whether they were all accurate or no. He did not care which result he should arrive at, but he was resolved that he would reach one or the other. When he had finished Dean Alford's notes, he found them to come to this, namely, 
that no one yet had succeeded in bringing the four accounts into tolerable harmony with each other, and that the dean, seeing no chance of succeeding better than his predecessors had done, recommended that the whole story should be taken on trust. And this Ernest was not prepared to do. He got his luncheon, went out for a long walk, and returned to dinner at half-past six. While Mrs. Jupp was getting him his dinner, a steak and a pint of stout, she told him that Miss Snow would be very happy to see him in about an hour's time. This disconcerted him, for his mind was too unsettled for him to wish to convert any one just then. He reflected a little, and found that, in spite of the sudden shock to his opinions, he was being irresistibly drawn to pay the visit, as though nothing had happened. It would not look well for him not to go, for he was known to be in the house. He ought not to be in too great a hurry to change his opinions on such a matter as the evidence for Christ's resurrection all of a sudden. Besides, he need not talk to Miss Snow about this subject to-day. There were other things he might talk about. What other things? Ernest felt his heart beat fast and fiercely, and an inward monitor warned him that he was thinking of anything rather than of Miss Snow's soul. What should he do? Fly, 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 it was the only safety. But would Christ have fled? Even though Christ had not died and risen from the dead, there could be no question that he was the model whose example we were bound to follow. Christ would not have fled from Miss Snow. He was sure of that, for he went about more especially with prostitutes and disreputable people. Now, as then, it was the business of the true Christian to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It would be inconvenient to him to change his lodgings, and he could not ask Mrs. Jupp to turn Miss Snow and Miss Maitland out of the house. Where was he to draw the line? Who would be just good enough to live in the same house with him, and who just not good enough? Besides, where were these poor girls to go? Was he to drive them from house to house till they had no place to lie in? It was absurd. His duty was clear. He would go and see Miss Snow at once, and try, if he could not, induce her to change her present mode of life. If he found temptation becoming too strong for him, he would fly then. So he went upstairs with his Bible under his arm, and a consuming fire in his heart. He found Miss Snow looking very pretty in a neatly, not to say demurely, furnished room. I think she had bought an illuminated text or two, and pinned it up over her fireplace that morning. Ernest was very much pleased with her, and mechanically placed his Bible upon the table. He had just opened a timid conversation, and was deep in blushes, when a hurried step came bounding up the stairs, as though of one over whom the force of gravity had little power, and a man burst into the room, saying, "'I'm come before my time.' It was Townley. His face dropped as he caught sight of Ernest. "'What, you here, Pontifex? Well, upon my word!' I cannot describe the hurried explanations that passed quickly between the three. 
enough that in less than a minute Ernest, blushing more scarlet than ever, slunk off, Bible and all, deeply humiliated, as he contrasted himself and Townley. Before he had reached the bottom of the staircase leading to his own room, he heard Townley's hearty laugh through Miss Snow's door, and cursed the hour that he was born. Then it flashed upon him that if he could not see Miss Snow, he could at any rate see Miss Maitland. He knew well enough what he wanted now, and as for the Bible, he pushed it from him to the other end of his table. It fell over onto the floor, and he kicked it into the corner. It was the Bible given him at his christening by his affectionate aunt, Elizabeth Allaby. True, he knew very little of Miss Maitland, but ignorant young fools in earnest state do not reflect or reason closely. Mrs. Baxter had said that Miss Maitland and Miss Snow were birds of a feather, and Mrs. Baxter probably knew better than that old liar, Mrs. Jupp. Shakespeare says, O opportunity, thy guilt is great. Tis thou that executest the traitor's treason. Thou setst the wolf where he the lamb may get. Whoever plots the sin, thou points the season. Tis thou that spurns at right, at law, at reason. And in thy shady cell, where none may spy him, sits sin to seize the souls that wander by him. If the guilt of opportunity is great, how much greater is the guilt of that which is believed to be opportunity, but in reality is no opportunity at all? If the better part of valor is discretion, how much more is not discretion the better part of vice? About ten minutes after we last saw Ernest, a scared, insulted girl, flushed and trembling, was seen hurrying from Mrs. Jupp's house as fast as her agitated state would let her, and in another ten minutes two policemen were seen also coming out of Mrs. Jupp's, between them whom there shambled, rather than walked, our unhappy friend Ernest, with staring eyes, ghastly pale, and with despair branded upon every line of his face. End of chapter 60 Recording by Rhonda Fetterman